0: Welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 180th episode of the Nauticast titled Up and Over, an analysis of a storm of Swords, John 4, in which John awkwardly reunites with his ex, The Wall. <laughs> the Wall and Egret, they, uh, they do not get along.
1: Yeah, she's a cold one. That's what I hear.
0: Night's Queen was sitting right in front of us all along. It's just the wall itself. It makes perfect sense. It all comes together. Uh, so as always, our spoiler warning. For all published books, five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, we reserve the right to spoil anything and everything. Our question this week comes from one of our Sworn Sword patrons, the Tarnished Elden Lord, who asks, Hi, Emmet and Manu. I've been enjoying this podcast for the past year, and I'm keeping up with the House of the Dragon coverage and going through the rest in book order. I am currently at Catalan 3 in a Clash of Kings where Stannis and Renly meet for the last time. My admittedly long question comment stems from this, and I'd like to start my patronage with a criticism. I love it already. I want to take issue with the show's history of calling Stannis the rightful king of Westeros. I love it already. <laughs> there are many ways to claim the right to rule, and all of the claims to kingship slash queenship in the series rely on different philosophies. Genetic succession, divine right, succession by appointment, and the will of the people. Stannis says neither the will of the people nor was he appointed to rule. He claims divine right as a political tactic, but does not seem to believe he has a divine right so much as that maybe if there is a god, the god can help him get what he believes is his due the genetic succession. It must be part of the discussion that his reliance on genetic succession is problematic as well. Daenerys, as heir to a dynasty that ruled Westeros for 300 years, has a right to see Robert as a usurper who brought down those whom he saw as not fit to rule because he thought he could do it better. Oliver Cromwell comes to mind. Stannis is Richard Cromwell, the new heir of the new dynasty, whom nobody wants, and Daenerys is Charles II waiting in France until the right moment to get back what was taken away from the family. My question is, why is Daenerys' right to rule, based on succession, always passed over in favor of Stannis's? On top of that, given that her birthing of dragons was a miracle, according to George, she also has more of a divine right than Stannis does. Sorry for the long question, I look forward to seeing this podcast through to the end of the series when Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring drop next week. Both at once, a double album, I love it. And yeah, great question. Obviously, as a terminally online, ironic, sarcastic person... You know, calling Stannis the rightful king of Westeros is, for me at least in large part, you know, a joke, like saying Catelyn did nothing wrong or something like that. Uh, you know, I think it's, it, like I've said about Stannis before, I think the the discussion around him, as with Daenerys, got kind of ridiculous at some point. I think, you know, with, with regards to the specifics of the uh, Baratheon versus Targaryen claim, I think it's worth noting that whatever you want to say about Robert, he wasn't rebelling against the Targaryens because he thought he could do it better they wanted his head. Like, that is what Aerys decreed needed to happen now, is that he wanted John Arryn to set him, Ned, and Robert's heads. So, for me, that lends a legitimacy to Robert's rebellion that doesn't necessarily carry over into anyone's claim vis-a-vis Daenerys. But that, I think, is, for me, like, the distinction there. I do think the Baratheon regime wasn't purely a power play, although you have the southron Ambitions Coalition behind it, but was a legitimate reaction to the Mad King being in charge. I think it's, it's more of an interesting open question how you view the Targaryen versus Baratheon claim after Robert is dead, because at this point you are both just drawing your claim from the dead guys, and Robert at least has a, a legitimacy, I think, somewhat from acclamation within his model, and uh, yeah, Stannis definitely does not.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm unsure on the rules of succession. Do I inherit all of Jeff's opinions or am I free to uh, <laughs> chart my own path? Is there primo Jeffiture on this podcast?
0: Uh, we do not follow such archaic rules here, thankfully. We are we are enlightened moderns in that regard. You are responsible only for your own dumbass opinions.
1: Okay. Oh, that's good. Um, I will take responsibility. For your, your own for incorrect body.
0: opinions. <laughs>
1: So um, I, I've never really made a power ranking of who I think has the most legitimate claim. Um, and I think that's more of just a no, pragmatic analysis of where things are. Right now, I don't really view Daenerys as a going concern in the Westerosi feud for the Iron Throne just because she hasn't actually done anything yet. She might style herself as the Queen of Westeros, um, but she hasn't actually started engaging either military or politically with any part of the institutions that make up Westerosi society. Um, And so Stannis is actually kind of involved in that, but he, how do I want to go about this? Um, Like, I think he's at the top of the list in terms of people in Westeros right now who are claiming to be King um, because right now the popular perception is that the iron throne is descending through Robert as of right now. Like, that's what Robert's Rebellion settled as law, by a hammer, I guess. Um, and from there, because Robert was king, the heir, the most, the rightful heir as of right now to the Westerosi people would be Robert's legitimate heir, which we know to be Stannis and not, um, what's it called? Tommen. Uh But uh, the Daenerys question, I think when she comes to Westeros, I think she's going to be claiming the Iron Throne more by conquest than necessarily lineage. But I think that lineage is like a nice thing to have. It's not the... Main entree, but it's a side. It's like, plus I have this just the same way that Robert's like, oh, the Baratheons were kind of Targaryens back in the day. It just kind of helps boost his case, but it isn't his case. And that's kind of how I feel about the rightful heirness as it applies to Daenerys.
0: I think you're, you're right on the money that it's it's not that these things don't matter at all, nor that they matter completely, but that they are. Part of this kind of constantly in motion stew of incentives and possibilities, and it's how it's the narrative you can attach it to that really counts. Like I do, you know, I think I think it made it convenient for people on the fence that Robert was Rhaegar's cousin, and that if he had succeeded in eliminating Viserys and Daenerys, he would technically be the Targaryen heir at that point. Not that that means God's finger has descended to anoint upon your forehead, but it means you have a story to tell yourself that doesn't lead you to pick up a sword and try to kill him. And I think the problem Stannis encountered is that people hating the Lannisters doesn't mean they like him. And that's that's that becomes an interesting part of his character when he gets to the north, where we don't necessarily know, because we don't have really POVs close among the northern lords. That's why you can come up with northern conspiracy theories, because what they're doing is kind of half in the shadow. But... They all seem to kind of have decided, yeah, Stannis will do for now. Like, we need someone to kill the Boltons, and we don't have a Stark to rally around. So, sure, we hate you less. But, like, that's that's never quite enough to get a coalition around him. And uh, Daenerys is going to be an interesting position in that regard, I think, which is something we talked about before. If young Grift ends up being uh, occupying the Iron Throne, rather than Cersei at that point, is, like, she goes shows up in Westeros, and the Targaryen restoration is over, as far as people are concerned, they'll be like, no, we got one. You're fine. We're good. We got we got a son. Uh, you know, obviously there's the relationship to the story being told in House of the Dragon right now. But like that's what that would do to Daenerys is interesting psychologically. But also, I think, as you said, push her more in the direction of I'm blazing a new trail. I'm queen because of my own actions. And I'm going to make myself queen, even if this kid, as far as we can tell, appears to be the the, the more strict blood heir to my father that's not why i'm the queen of westeros i agree that might be her mindset at that point
1: oh uh and by the way let me just give you props for your username the tarnished elden lord um i was also elden Ring pilled, and perhaps at some point i'll dive into the george martinness of it all Um, but i really appreciate that name so well done with the question um and the name
0: Two points to you, sir. Thank you so much for the question. As always, if you uh, want to force us to answer your questions here on the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, where patrons also get extra episodes and early access to our regular episodes and a lot more benefits besides. So go ahead and check that out. But we are here for Jon Snow. That's what we're here to talk about today is a Storm of Swords Jon Four. So let's jump into the synopsis. You may have forgotten, what with all the cave sex, but in John's last chapter, he attempted to mind meld with his dog in order to tell Lassie to go home. Looks like it worked, and that ghost is gone the next morning, but John really has no clue where the hell he went. All he can do is hope. If nothing else, the view is pretty. A pink sky, the white stars blazing as they fade, the golds and russets of the trees, and oh yeah, the wall. Did we mention the wall? Well, that's where we are now. Stir Magnar of Then, takes charge, sending riders east and west to watch for rangers. The rest fall behind co-manager Jarl to begin the long climb. Jarl picked a perfect spot, where rising hills take up a chunk of the height, minimizing the amount of time they have to spend on the icy surface of the wall itself. John remembers that Uncle Benjen said the wall was straight like a sword east of Castle Black, but curved like a snake to the west, and now he knows what Benjen meant. Once upon a time, the Watch sent out men to clear back the trees and deny the wildlings the easy climb, but as the Watch shrank, the climbers' task became easier. They can approach the base of the Wall, while staying concealed from sight. It gets colder the closer they get, and Jon soon realizes that the Thens are frightened, because they've never seen the Wall before. It's the end of the world, either way. It's all in where you stand, as Egret said. But Jon has no idea where he stands these days. To stay with Egret, he'd have to betray the Watch for real. And for good. If he leaves her behind, the Magnar might kill her out of suspicion. And if they went together? Well, even if she came with him, there's nowhere for them to go. As for Jarl's raiders, though, they're not thrown off their game by the wall. Not one bit. This is familiar territory for them. They've all gone over before, even though two of them are younger than John, and they've all got washboard abs. They're gonna make it through just fine. The Climbers get their shit together, winding ropes around their shoulders, down their chests, putting on their boots from REI. Jarl organizes them into three teams of four, and tells them that if they meet their quotas this quarter, they'll get a dance party. Sorry, wait, that's Severance. Jarl tells them that Mance has promised sweet-ass swords to the first team to reach the top, as well as their names in the song he'll make about his campaign. Now that's how you motivate people. Mance should give a TED Talk. As they climb, Jon thinks about how many ways there are to get past the wall. In the east, raiders build boats to sail across the Bay of Seals. In the west, they descend into the gorge to get around the Shadow Tower. But in between, the only way past the wall is over it, and that's dangerous. Rangers sometimes find the bodies of those who have tried and failed, and even those that make it over have to do without their mounts. Inexperienced raiders will steal horses right away, which gets them found and killed by the Night's Watch. Jarl, unfortunately for the Watch, knows what he's doing, and won't make that mistake. But Jon wonders if Stir might not know how the game is played. Egret snaps John back to reality. Oop! There goes gravity, and he sees that Jarl himself is leading the climb, having found a tree leaning against the wall. John soaks in Jarl's cautious professionalism as the latter hacks out handholds and kicks out toeholds, using his hammer to drive stakes into the wall at intervals. Team Jarl is 80 feet up before the even team before the other teams are even visible to those watching below. Place your bets now, folks. Stir, meanwhile, is doing what he does best: complain. He says that all the climbers are going too slow and should hurry up before the watch finds them. Jon Snow, despite knowing nothing, knows better. Remembering from his climb up the Sterling Pass, how slowly you have to move to survive. And that was on stone, not the tricky treacherous ice of the wall. Jon doesn't want to like the wildlings, but he can't help but admire their courage for risking their lives like this. On the other hand, Jon hopes some of his brothers, former brothers, show up and put an end to this so he doesn't have to. Ned used to say that walls alone don't keep you safe. You need men to defend them. The wall provides enough of an advantage that John thinks like four watchmen would be enough, but not even a single one shows up. Team Jarl loses their lead when they hit a patch of bad ice. Jarl falls briefly, but his team holds fast, as do the stakes, and so he pulls through. Whew, close call. Smooth sailing from here on out. The second squad is coming up close behind, led by Grig the Goat. Who knew that we had the greatest of all time on the climb? The third squad is struggling with a smooth, moist stretch of ice, where Grig's men are taking advantage of some obvious footholds. John's just impressed their leg muscles aren't cramping up. I guess the 12-foot climbing wall at the Winterfell Gym did not prepare him for this. Jarl starts opening up the gap between him and Grig again, with Sturr commenting that the man's pit must want a sword. The wall hears that, goes, fuck you, and a gigantic ice sheet crumbles off the wall and comes crashing down. It's so huge that some chunks even rain down on those waiting hundreds of feet below. When they look back up, Team Yarl and all their equipment have vanished as if they were never there at all. There was a wound in the wall where the climbers had clung half a heartbeat before, the ice within it as smooth and white as polished marble and shining in the sun. Far, far below, there was a faint red smear where someone had smashed against a frozen pinnacle. The wall defends itself, John thought, as he pulled Igorit back to her feet. The survivors go looking for the dead and find Jarl impaled on a tree. One of his men is still breathing, but he asks for mercy and gets it. Stir orders his men to build a pyre. By the time Grig the goat reaches the top of the wall, the bodies are burning. By the time Eric and the third team make it up there, the bodies are gone. John is starting to hyperventilate at the thought of making this climb himself, he's just like me for real. But it turns out they're going to have an easier time of it. The men atop the wall lower a rope, and the men below tie a series of huge hemp ladders to it. Eric, Greg, and their backing bands pull up the ladders, and the Thens begin to climb. Even now, the wall is decidedly in violation of OSHA safety regulations. Two of the Thens fall and die before the climb is done. Egret says she hates the wall. It's made of blood. John says, no, it's not. It's made of ice. Thanks for contributing, buddy. Here's a ball. Perhaps you'd like to play with it. John and Egret make it up by midnight, but she says she almost fell several times, because the wall was trying to shake her off. John sees that she's crying, puffs out his narrow little chest, and tells her not to be scared because the worst is behind them. Oh, if only. Egret knocks his ass back and says she's not crying out of fear, but anger that the wildlings never found the Horn of Joraman, aka the Horn of Winter, to take the wall down. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, John 4, and what do you make of this chapter, Manu?
1: It's a neat little trick to have Jon be an observer here, taking in the wildling cultures, work ethics, and battle strategies as Jarl and his raiders scale the wall. Like Arya and the Peach, it's all about what Jon truly sees as he watches this death-defying feat. Lessons he can use not only when he's Lord Commander, but also a rec- reconciliator between the Free Folk and the Watch. The more quote-unquote cinematic choice would be to focus on John climbing the wall himself as the show depicted. But don't let that fool you, the imagery is as alive as ever here. The wall remains the greatest wonder in George's world, and giving it a chance to take center stage feels appropriate as John bounds between worlds.
0: Something I really love about John's story in Storm of Swords is how George keeps switching up the genre. At first, this was an espionage story, with John as an undercover spy in Mance's camp. Then it veered into tragic romance with Egret. Now it's an adventure story, with the Wildlings taking on the literally enormous task of climbing over the wall. And it follows the logic of a procedural story, focused on the, the tangible, detailed actions the Wildlings take to pull it off. It's a chapter about skill and professionalism. Contrasted with John's ongoing inner struggle and the unpredictable behavior of the wall itself. It's a terrific tense set piece on its own, but all of these genres build on each other, like the layers of John's identity, each one adding flavor to his story, which really I think is only getting better as it goes. So the chapter starts naturally with John discovering that his dog ran off in the night. Ghost of course embodies John's conflicted relationship to House Stark, inside and outside at the same time. So the wolf's absence for the rest of the book, until the very end, represents John's confusion about his identity. No more conveniently external manifestations of your soul now. John can be anyone he wants, which is both liberating and terrifying. Also ambiguous is Ghost's destination. Did he really make for Castle Black, or did he just run off after some animals? All John can do is hope, and that hope is reflected in the vibrant imagery, The pale pink sky, the greens and golds and reds of the forest, the Sword of the morning constellation blazing like the real thing did outside John's birthplace. You could say he's being born again. Above the trees looms the Wall. And we haven't seen the Wall in a while, not since the start of Clash of Kings. And this chapter functions in large part as a reintroduction to the Wall. A wonder of the world, as you said. A hinge of the world. I love how Melisandre puts that later on. We've only ever seen the Wall from the south. And now we're approaching it from the north. Again, as Egret told John, it's all in where you're standing. And the wall frightens even the badass thens. Because it marks the end of the world to them too, just from a different direction. It's that border between people that turns them into, well, others.
1: We look up at the same stars and see such different things, is the line from John 3. But the same can be said about the wall. John, the men of the Night's Watch, and the people of Westeros look up at the wall and see protection, the northern border of their massive, king- massive kingdom that prevents encroachments from wildlings, white walkers, or for the more skeptical, grumpkins and snarks. But the wildlings see something different to their south. It is an obstacle, a hindrance, that which prevents deliverance for the free folk. There's two sides to every wall, which comes across wonderfully in John's Storm of Swords arc. The Divide of the Wall is the divide in himself, loyalty to free folks or to the Watch. It's a continuation of his struggle since A Game of Thrones, where he was unsure if he wanted to be a man of the Night's Watch or if he should be marching south with Rob. And this, of course, is setting up perhaps his larger struggle of identity, reconciling his Stark side, symbolized by north of the Wall, with his Targaryen side, the kingdom south of it. We'll be reminded much and more of the Wall in this chapter too. It can be emotional or animated. When it weeps, we will see it defend itself. The wall figures to factor heavily into the winds of spring. So after a book and a half away from it, it's return. It returns with all its range.
0: Yeah. I love uh, thinking about uh, the kind of mind expanding process John is going through and then thinking about perspective that he's never considered before. Like he's, probably always thought about the wildlings in relation to the wall. Like the wildlings are the people trying to get past the wall that the Night's Watch guards against. And now you have wildlings who live so far to the north that they've never seen the wall at all. It's completely new to them, let alone the lands beyond it. The wall itself is foreign to them. The unknown is frightening. And what makes Jon's story so poignant is at this point he's feeling unknown to himself. He's not sure of his loyalties and he knows his indecision isn't going to last for much longer. And that kind of leads into the, the big metaphor of the chapter that I think the show made very literal when they called that, uh, that episode in season three of The Climb and right at the end of Littlefinger's big as they were cutting between all the storylines. They ended with uh, John and Egret arriving atop the wall. The climb is all there is. And yeah, for John climbing the wall here is climbing the ladder. It's reaching for your hopes and, and putting yourself at risk to make your dreams come true. Not just him. That applies to the Wildlings too.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's also something where once you begin the climb you can't really get off or you climb or you die. Um, that's kind of what the situation is. It's very similar to the Game of Thrones. And I think that's why it kind of works in that little finger monologue um, because it is very much uh, what happens uh, when you start playing the Game of Thrones. You either climb to the top or you end up like Jarl.
0: Unlike the Fens, though, the wall is not unknown to Jarl's climbers. They are very used to it. Climbing up and over is, it's the job. It's something they've done like a dozen times before. So while George builds up the legend of the wall with one hand, the other hand is busy demystifying it. Because ultimately, it is just an obstacle. Like, yeah, it's big, it's unrealistically big, but it's not insurmountable. It won't literally change around you and break the rules of physics like the House of the Undying. This is to be Jarl's moment of glory, John thinks, which is pretty ironic in retrospect given what happens to the poor guy. And you can see throughout the chapter, George keeps emphasizing Jarl's youth—that he's a child in death, a lot like Waymar Royce at the beginning of the story. As the Wildings prepare to climb, we get all this this great logistical detail about their setup, all, all their equipment, what they're doing with it. It enriches the world building and it grounds us in a phys- in physical movement, so we feel like we're really there when things go horribly wrong. We're kind of we've already felt the sensations, all the textures, all the sounds, so it feels really deadly and dangerous when, again, things go horribly wrong.
1: And this isn't just some slapdash rock climbing challenge. It's well thought out. Scouting parties are sent both east and west to set a watch on, well, the watch. And they choose a ground zeroes that takes advantage of the land, where stone and dirt can be easily climbed before having to face the treacherous ice. I think George is showing us the other side of the military equation with the free folk. At Winterfell and the Wall, the common refrain is, the wildlings are unorganized and undisciplined a horde that will break at the first sight of a real army, which, to be fair, the Night's Watch do not have. But now we are seeing wildlings with cunning and physical prowess and courage, even a bit of strategy and cooperation. This increases the tension for the upcoming battles at Castle Black, while also allowing Jon to take in a more comprehensive view of the wildlings, which he will use in his attempts at reconciliation in A Dance with Dragons
0: yeah i I love the the grounded really thought through qualities to this chapter that it's you you get the sense of how experienced these men are and you you can you can kind of sense all the memories of the missions that have gone wrong because maybe they didn't do these things like these lessons have been passed down to them because oh we tried it once and we weren't keeping you know we didn't have scouts out so we all got killed or most of us got killed so you will learn this son and that's what i like you have this you know the wall is again it's this mystical mythical thing that nevertheless you can deal with it logistically it intersects with nature and you know sometimes nature wins like the the wall ages like anything else and it's not you know when john saw it again it looked like this perfect straight thing like a sword cutting through the land and actually here it, it snakes its way through the hills it kind of has to deal with nature as it exists and it depends on the watch for upkeep so as the Nights watch has weakened so has the wall
1: and that's exactly like the Watch not being able to come around anymore and cut down the trees that are encroaching up on it. The Watch being less manned now, especially after the failure of the Great Ranging, means that nature can even further encroach on the giant structure, increasing risk for those that man it. And I do got to mention, we do get a mention of Stone Snake. Stone Snake. Basically just want to keep tabs on this guy, who's one of George's famous missing characters. Oh, and if you like characters named Snake... Boy, do I have a podcast for you.
0: It's, it's going to be a, a subtle transition to being a full-time Metal Gear Solid podcast on here instead. You won't even know. We're just going to do it bit by bit. So right before the climb, Yarl passes on a promise from Mance. Castle forged, steel swords to the first team to reach the top. And that really sums it all up. Everything they're here to do on both a literal and metaphorical level. The romance of it, almost perversely chivalric... The wealth gap at work, the appeal of castle-forged steel to those with neither castles nor forges nor steel, and the ability to use those swords to keep the war going, the zero-sum game of competition in a world of brutal scarcity. The others take the hindmost, Jarl says, his breath misting up like they're already here. The white walkers that both drive the wildlings forward into conflict with the Night's Watch and also make that conflict moot.
1: Yeah, it is a great irony there. and. It's a very literal expression, the other takes the hindmost, as we saw in Sam 1. Mm -hmm. Um, And the danger really came to Sam when he became the hindmost of the party trying to make it back to safety. Funny how these colloquialisms are rooted in truth, long forgotten. Though, I guess for the wildlings, they've seen the others more recently than others have.
0: It might be much more literal for them than it is for anyone south of the wall, absolutely. Absolutely. And you you get the setup that many people die this way. That's what John is telling us about all the people who have fallen. You know, that's just letting the audience know we might be seeing someone fall here today. John also lets us know in his thoughts that there are other ways of getting around the wall, which I I think Elsie Mormont mentioned that in passing to Tyrion in the first book. But this is kind of the longest we've dwelled on the idea that, no, the wall is not invulnerable, and the Watchmen have to work with locals to fight the raiders. And I like again; it's very grounded in a, a sense of realism. That horses are the key to all this. That they are, they give you mobility, but the problem is once you steal them, everyone knows you're there. It's, it's you know someone's going to miss their horses. They're going to realize again this kind of entrenched wisdom. Ah, uh, my dad told me. If horses are missing out of nowhere, probably means raiders have come over the wall. So there's this whole system of observation and communication. And it reminds me of the Brandy Bucks and Lord of the Rings, how they have this whole this whole signal of of warning people and setting off the lanterns and the horns and whatnot that we see in Lord of the Rings.
1: Yeah, that's gonna suck, right? <laughs> like you actually make it over the wall, a seven hundred feet piece of sheer ice. And then you get got for stealing the first horse you see. (laughs) But that's the whole other world on the other side of the wall for the free folk. They just, their ways are not the Southern ways. And they just wouldn't know that that's ultimately a damning move because they think they're I mean, when you have a 700-feet seven, piece of ice, that is the obstacle, not getting mobile once you're on the other side of it.
0: Right, you don't must be riding the high of that and maybe not taking it seriously. I bet that's probably is what happens to young raiders. Jarl is an experienced raider. He knows the danger, but John thinks, stir the Magnar of and He's never been here. He might not realize that's how it works. Something I really like about how the Wildlings are written is that there's a lot of divisions among them, like this. it's a, it's You get the sense of a very rich multicultural coalition, and they're not just you know, a swarm of faceless barbarians as they might be in an older story or a less thoughtful story. I really like how George writes them.
1: Yeah, there are differences in class here too, even if nowhere near as pronounced as south of the wall. Jarl and two others have iron spiked boots for climbing, a few others bronze. The rest are using bone, which makes Emmett's point about the wealth gap stick out much more when the boon of castleforged steel is promised to these young raiders.
0: For them, any steel has the allure that Valyrian steel has to people south of the wall, right? We're going to get to the next Tyrion chapter a couple episodes from now when, when Tywin is looking with such reverence upon his new Valyrian steel swords, and that's how these guys would look on any castle forge steel, in the same way that Egret thinks that the first watchtower she sees is a castle, because it's, again, it's all shaped by your perspective and where you come from and what your experiences are. And we see Jarl's team quickly take the lead, because he took advantage of a large tree leaning up against the wall. And I love that John is like, he kind of winces when he sees that. He's ashamed. Cause that is, that is just tangible evidence of the watch falling short. And it also speaks to the general failure of the Night's Watch to contain nature, as in the human nature that drives its members to break their vows. Like John with Egret. His love is kind of that, that wild tree that's not supposed to be there, but the vows didn't keep it at bay.
1: Yeah, kind of like we talked about in our mini-sode, George really gets to long-play John's growth into leadership. So these are the kind of things he can work into these chapters in the first three books, and that John can make a mental note of for when he is eventually Lord Commander. um, He knows that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. So I like these little mental notes that John is writing to himself.
0: Absolutely. Very patient, very subtle, but they're all there. Stir meanwhile, is backseat driving. Not exactly a great leader, just complaining about how long it's taking the climbers, because, again, he lacks that first-hand experience. He doesn't recognize the danger of moving too quickly. John knows because of his time in the Frostfangs in the last book. And that makes for a great contrast, because now he's climbing with the wildlings instead of hunting them like he was doing in the Frostfangs. And while, you know, John was afraid of falling in Clash of Kings, but he didn't, well, Jarl's not going to be so lucky.
1: Yeah, and we get our second mention of Stone Snake. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine many of these wildling climbers were seasoned in the Frostfangs as well, binding them with a communal experience with John, who also was climbing the Frostfangs not too long ago. Long ago, So you can see that as he's juggling the two roles he's playing as wildling or man of the Night's Watch, he's able to juxtapose the experiences that he's already shared with the wildlings that he's climbing with.
0: You know, I wouldn't be surprised if some younger raiders trained in the Frostfangs first, like were sent up there with like a mentor to get some experience before trying their hands on the wall. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a commonplace thing. John, of course, is doing what he does best, which is flip-flopping inside his miserable brain. (laughs) Poor John. He's playing a role, but you can only wear a mask so long before it's just your face. He recognizes the wildlings as brave while telling himself not to like them. And he wishes a patrol would end this so he doesn't have to make the choice. And isn't that kind of telling? He's like, if the Night's Watch show up, well then the wildlings will be defeated. But I didn't have to do it. I didn't make the call. Oh, good. It was made for me.
1: Yeah. And John's thoughts return to Ned here. No wall can keep you safe, which is always true, but very specifically going to apply to this capital W wall and the others who will come for it. And returning to what we talked about up top, there's two sides to every wall. On one hand, no, no wall can keep you safe forever. But also 20 men on a wall can possibly repel 2,000. It's all about where you stand. And right now, John is having trouble deciding where he does stand.
0: It's a shame he's so just so miserable about having to choose because that's what just George forces him to do. Every book in worse and worse ways, John's whole arc is all about choosing, like Maester Eamon warned him. And he's beginning to realize that there's not just a, a happy ending waiting for him. There's no obvious right decision he gets to make that resolves all his feelings. It's going to be a loss, a sacrifice, no matter what he does. If he returns to the Watch, it's not just that he loses Egret; it's that Egret is now identified with him, so she's going to suffer for it. If he stays with her, he can really never go back. Like, if he continues to the point of making war against the Night's Watch, he'll never be welcome in Westerosi society at any level again. And if they romantically abandon both sides, we're in love, fuck the war, it sounds good, but then where do they go? It's a zero-sum game. There's no neutral territory. Not even the gift, as we'll see in John's next chapter. At this point, the climbers hit a patch of bad ice, but it's a red herring. Again, George is playing with different genre tropes. We're in mountaineering adventure territory. You get this jolt of suspense, and then relief as the protections hold, for now.
1: George takes a magnifying glass to the wall here, so it's not just one 700-foot sheet of ice, but individual blocks placed on top of each other, almost like Lego, although imperfectly. There's space where blocks have slid, were not perfectly placed, and nature itself has taken its toll. The snow, rain, and wind have carved out little holes and chimneys. What may look like a clean, unblemished surface from afar is craggly and wrinkled, perhaps showing the age and imperfection of this wonder. And also, props to the climbers here. The extreme endurance test as John watches four, six, eight hours tick away. God, I can't imagine doing anything for that long. And John's just watching, getting lost in it, seeing who's ahead, seeing what Eric's strategy is, until he hears the sound, a sudden crack. For half a heartbeat, you think it's a horn. John has been waiting, hoping all chapter that the watch would arrive, that their horn or the fen's horn would put an end to all this. So when George says the sound, you almost expect it to be that.
0: Oh, uh, that's a great call. Especially thinking that if the horn of winter turns out to be a major element of the story that... You hear a sound that could be a horn right as part of the wall falls, and maybe the horn of winter makes the whole thing fall or part of it fall. That's terrific. I love that. And yeah, something I like about this is that it doesn't, it doesn't seem like the fall is precipitated by any poor decision on the climber's part. I mean, we're at a distance, of course, but it, it seems like it just happens. Hence, the wall defends itself, a, a line John will repeat later in the book. And it's, it leaves you in a kind of this ambiguous position. Like, is this just bad luck or is there something magical going on? Either way, I love the irony of the wall just looking, like, all smug after part of it falls off. It's all just smooth and reborn and perfect now. It'll always shuffle you off and emerge. The wall feels immortal, like it's impossible to get past the divisions it represents between them because, as Egret says, the wall feeds on blood. And Jon can't glory in Jarl's fall. He can't think of Jarl as enemy who's been defeated and be happy about that because he didn't He didn't seem like a bad guy, and he'll later tell Val how sorry he is that Jarl's dead. But the wildlings themselves are at war, and they can't afford sentiment, burning the bodies as the others climb. Ashes to ashes, and the next group is going to get those swords of Castleford steel instead.
1: This was all nicely set up by Jon telling us earlier about the watch patrols, how every so often they'd just come across the corpses of failed climbers. Jarl is going to be just another corpse, another splatter. The wall looks unblemished, and the blood will wash away soon enough. And that ice and fire imagery pops up here at the end. We've spent an entire chapter facing this obstacle of ice, and now some have succumbed to that. They in turn must be given to the fire, lest the creatures of ice take them for their own. And there's that wonderful egret line you called out in your recap. The wall isn't made of ice, it's made of blood. We see the very literal meaning of that with the wildlings who died at its feet this chapter, including two more during the climb up the hunt and ladders. But I think there's a more profound political meaning here. The wall is made of blood expresses the sentiments that borders, and very specifically militarized borders, are violence themselves. There's a reason my Metal Gear Solid podcast, Podcast Sounds Frontiers, translates to "Podcast without borders, because those games rooted in the very real geopolitics following World War II, are all about how borders themselves are inherently violent. The way that global superpowers, mostly the US and UK, put up borders around the world cause untold violence for unjustified reasons. The partition of India and Pakistan, the carving out of Afghanistan, the division of Cyprus between Greeks and Turks, or just the entire remapping of the Middle Eastern empires into countries like Iraq or Iran, putting peoples and tribes that did not relate well into an artificial container and forcing them to create a coherent political body. But of course, we don't have to zoom halfway around the world to see borders as violence. This phenomenon occurs on the very near borders of the good old US of A. Our border to the south with Mexico is incredibly cruel, a militarized stretch filled with troops and drones to capture and cage people fleeing poverty, warfare, and climate change, all three of which the U.S. is predominantly responsible for. It's a sick feedback loop. Even still, 22,000 people are being held in ICE detention centers in this country, 70% of which have no criminal record. And at this point, everyone has seen the squalid conditions in which these people are held, large communal cages that are overcrowded. Just in George's own youth, the DMZ on the Korean Peninsula and the Berlin Wall were major sources of strife and tragedy. Ygritte's not wrong to say the wall is made of blood, and its existence very much threatens her people as they try to flee south away from the others.
0: Really well said, man. And I think so often we can point to the the oncoming arrival of the others as this clear example of how uh, harsh and awful the divisions between these worlds are. That, you know, leaving the Wildlings north of the Wall is essentially leaving them in this this pen for the others to just hunt. But, you know, even if the White Walkers weren't there and were never there or were never coming back, it, it would still be terrible. The way that the, the Wildlings are just kind of left out of, of uh, resources and land uh, south of the Wall and people point to the to the you know the existence of the raiders as evidence that they you know they shouldn't be allowed south of the wall as if th- as if there aren't people south of the wall doing the same thing and worse among Westerosi people like why you know why is Grigor Clegane allowed in polite society, and we see that I think captured at an individual level with John's struggle that he recognizing the wildlings is so painful because his job is to go back to war with them. And now he knows who they are. And he's like, that's, that's going to make it a lot harder. <laughs> in the same way that Jamie doesn't name his horses because then it hurts when they die. Like you're cutting yourself off from that feeling because it hurts, but never thinking about, hey, why does that hurt? <laughs> Maybe I should listen to that part of my, myself that's telling me this is awful. And in terms of this chapter specifically, I, you know, that's, that ends up being the focus. Like I love that we barely get any description of John's climb. Like it's almost an afterthought given what he's just, given what he's seen and given what Ygritte is telling him about what it means. And I love that kind of perverse quality where like John specifically is not in danger. Like the wall knows he belongs (laughs) and it's all, it's like trying to throw Ygritte off. That's what she says. Now, is that literally true? Probably not. You know, I, uh, any magical explanation is possible. I suppose I don't think the wall is literally like discriminating against them as they climb, but what matters is that she believes it. And it gives shape to that cultural gap between them that the wall has only made worse. It's a a shadow on a very literal wall. And John tries to reassure her romantically at this point, you know, pulling her close for a hug and a kiss. Unlike the show, though, she's not interested because, as usual, he knows nothing. That cultural baggage is something he's not taking into account. Ygritte is clearly afraid. She says she wasn't, but no, she's clearly afraid and she's covering up. But that doesn't mean her anger isn't real. Like, even as they get over the wall... She wanted to defeat it, and they didn't. Like, it took its toll. And there's the, the horrible irony of Jon saying the worst is behind us, because there are, there are many more losses to come, including Igret herself.
1: But also, the worst is literally behind them. I call back to the <laughs> other stick behind most line. The Wildlings yeah. are still being tailed writ large by the White Walkers.
0: That's a great point. And, and uh, Mance's campaign won't be enough to get everyone through the wall. And even then... You know, we're going to we're going to see the wall come down or at least a breach blown in it like the show. As we were saying earlier, it's not going to be enough. So going into foreshadowing and groundwork, like I said, at the beginning of the chapter, John sees that Ghost is gone. Doesn't know. Maybe he went off to Castle Black to try and warn them about the wildling attack. And later in the book, uh, Ghost does show up at Castle Black, but hysterically only after the fight with the wildlings is already done. So good job, boy. Right after the nick of time. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Ghost isn't really here to serve military or political function for Jon, he's here as a symbol of his soul and identity, like you said earlier. Ghost's return is very deliberately coincided with Jon weighing his Stark of Winterfell option as presented by Stannis, but the idea of being on the other side of Mance's attack on the Wall and the election for a new Lord Commander, that's just so far beyond Jon's purview at this moment in time. He doesn't even know if he'll see Castle Black again.
0: We were saying in the mini-sode that we recorded before this episode, that we record before every episode, that uh, it's amazing how quickly John's arc in this book moves. And he, just in terms of the ter- literal territory he's covering, the different characters he's dealing with, the different situations he's experiencing. So when he sees Ghost again, it's he's, it's almost like he feels like he's a different person, or that he doesn't know who he is, and in a way, Ghost reminds him. You know, he thinks he had his answer then in terms of what he was going to say to Stannis. Then he gets immediately elected Lord Commander anyway, but he did make the choice with, with Ghost's help. So uh, moving into theory and discussion, we're talking about Ghost at the start of the chapter, but at the very end of the chapter, Egret says something kind of interesting when she talks about how mad she is about the Wall. She says, she kind of confesses this almost uh, sense of guilt, like uh, we opened up all of these graves and let all these shades loose into the world, she says, but we never found the Horn of Winter to bring this thing down, this cold thing down. Now, a lot of people see on the Horn of Winter part of that for obvious reasons, but I was curious, so what do you thought she meant exactly by letting all these shades loose on the world?
1: I'm inclined to take this one at its simplest meaning, that they opened graves and the dead therein were risen by the others. But why would this upset Egrit is the question. We already assume the White Walkers have a zombie count that's incredibly high. Did they open that many graves that it materially added to the head count? It's possible, I guess. The more gnarly motion would be if they had somehow awoken some of the others, maybe not wholesale, but if they were truly, quote unquote, sleeping beneath the ice, maybe Mance and Egret let a rash of them free somehow. Um, That's the best I can come with. I would surely love to see a third and secret thing show up as another option, (laughs) Um, but I couldn't even begin to guess what that is. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a mysterious little line. I don't know how important it really is, but it's interesting to think about. Because, yeah, on the one hand, she could be talking about just giving raw material, as you say, to the White Walkers. On the other hand, the Wildlings are known for burning their dead. I don't know, you know, if they were pulling bodies out of the ground, i I might think they would set them on fire after they were done trying to loot them. Who knows? Obviously, we don't have a POV there for that it's it's very intriguing to think about that they might have some culpability for letting the others loose. I kind of doubt it because it seems like a very kind of mundane explanation for the others that they were just like, you know, the ice was six inches too thick until Mance got there. <laughs> and then like Tormund hit it with his comical like dwarf pick <laughs> and then the others came tumbling out. Somewhat I doubt that. Um, I guess it's possible it could be partial. I also don't know like Why would they be looking for the Horn of Winter if the others hadn't already shown up? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess they want to get past the Wall for normal King Beyond the Wall reasons, but I kind of got the sense that Mance was looking for the Horn specifically to get away from the White Walkers. Uh, It is, I mean, just thinking about it purely in terms of character, it does add an interesting layer to Egret if she has this kind of, uh, this guilt buried beneath the, the righteousness and the rage that she thinks that they might be responsible for what's going on and that they're kind of fleeing their own sins. Like it really adds a dimension to how uh, rightfully harsh she is about Craster when Jon brings Craster up because, you know, he, he's rumored to have be cursed and, you know, he's in league with the White Walkers. But maybe the Wildlings feel kind of collectively connected to that. There are theories that, you know, the, the reason the Wildlings are up there is because their ancestors made deals with the White Walkers. And, that, you know, there's something similar going on in Rings of Power with the men whose ancestors made a deal with Morgoth. And it's, you know, the, you don't have the, the quite the same punishing border logic in Tolkien's <laughs> world. So I think that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, John 4. Thanks, as always, everyone, for listening. If you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we always appreciate it. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf where our patrons get early access, exclusive episodes, and more benefits. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can follow me
1: at Porquentin on Twitter. You can follow me at the Nuclear Bomb and check out my coverage of *The Lord of the Rings: The Rings of Power* at my brother, my captain, my podcast.
0: And I recently put out my latest *Lord of the Rings* episode for patrons, covering Book Five, Chapter Seven of *The Lord of the Rings: The Pyrodentithor*. That's available for all five dollars and above patrons right now. Uh, next week, I'm going to be recording my first monthly Star Wars episode for patrons. I was doing weekly Star Wars episodes for a while while we were on hiatus from A Song of Ice and Fire, but I'm jumping back in on a monthly basis for all $5 and above patrons, kicking off our Revenge of the Sith. That's going to be next week. And then the week after that, we will be back in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 4, in which Jamie has lost some weight, but you know, he's not feeling great about it. Uh, we'll give him a hand. Everyone give him a big hand. And of course, along the way, we're going to be doing our weekly House of the Dragon episodes. We'll be keeping those up until the season is done in late October. So uh, thank you again for listening, everyone. And we will uh, see you next time in Westeros for Storm of Swords, Jamie 4.